Our God, to whom we come, take these words and our hearts that we offer and use them afresh for your service in the world. Amen. It might just be me and my vivid imagination, but I've often wondered what it was that Jesus bent down and wrote in that moment when he and the woman taken in adultery were threatened by the Pharisees and the others who came with them ready to kill and murder. What was it he wrote in the dust that gave the woman strength enough to stand there waiting? Was what he wrote only for her eyes? Was it a message that was specifically for her? If so, did she realise the message directed at her eyes and heart was part of a larger and wider message for all eyes and hearts? Or was it some sort of working out for himself in that dusty, arid plain? Did Jesus have to try to work out what to do? Was he stalling for time? Or did he just know? Or was it a message he hoped those standing with rocks in their hands and hate upon their lips would see and understand also? Did Jesus hope that those standing ready to murder the creation would change their hearts without him needing to say anything? In many ways, it really doesn't matter what he wrote or who it was for. The outcome was a good one. Well, for the woman, anyway. It probably didn't do much for Jesus himself. Pardon the pun, but it was another nail in the coffin or the cross for him. He had been tested by the Pharisees again and had given a performance that humbled and humiliated them all. It was an act of rebellion. By his mercy and protection of this woman, an outsider and a sinner, he was violating their well-held law yet again. Would this man ever stop eating and drinking with sinners, feeding people, teaching about God in ways that ordinary people could understand, forgiving sins, healing those who least deserved it, and on the Sabbath, to boot, protecting women, the dishonoured, disabled, poor, hungry and thirsty, and all at the same time as calling into question the way the holy ones conducted themselves and basically telling them they had forgotten God. This man, Jesus, was shining a light onto their deeds and their thoughts in the most powerful and rebellious way he could think of. He was reminding them that for all their fasting and all their praying, the only fast God wished for and chose then and now is to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. It is to share bread with the hungry, to provide shelter for the homeless, to cover the naked in clothing and dignity. He was reminding them that he was a fulfilment of that prophecy in Isaiah. Such a dangerous man 
and such a dangerous message because it threatened their nicely ordered lives. It still threatens people because it is precisely not ordered. And time after time, he made them think about their own lives and their own need for healing and mercy. It wasn't comfortable to be around Jesus. Except for those like that woman taken in adultery, standing in front of him. Although I somehow doubt it was comfortable for her to remain standing in front of Jesus, even when everybody else had left. I would suggest it was particularly uncomfortable for her when he leaves her with the words, go your way and from now on do not sin again. Because in that moment, he lay responsibility upon her shoulders to live out the light and mercy, forgiveness and justice he had bestowed upon her himself. Wherever she went back to, she had to take this to others around her, tell of the mercy and justice she had received and do likewise. But wherever she returned to, she would have had a new confidence about her own worthiness that would enable her to stand strong when perhaps she was used and abused by others. She might not be able to forget, but she could go her own way now, for she was healed and justified. Jesus, in his actions and his words, gives her a gift that no other man in her life had ever thought to give her, and maybe no other woman either. Unconditional love. Jesus, in his actions and words on the cross, gives to each one of us a gift that no one else can fully give us. Unconditional love, mercy, justice and forgiveness. And as with every Lent, we are invited to come back more fully to that unconditional love that is offered to us. I wonder if you were standing before Jesus in a dusty place now, what would he write in the dust for you to see and behold? What is it that he, and he alone, could know about you that needs to behold the enormous love he has for you in that message? What is it that you need to read in the dust of your very own being? As some of you know, I love to sing and love to listen to all kinds of music, including classical music that uses something called the ground bass or the cantus firmus, literally meaning fixed song. It is what for most of the Middle Ages church music consisted of, we know it as Gregorian chant, one line of melody which was attached to the words of the prayers. Until the ninth century, that melody was left unclothed. By the 12th century, it was found that two or more melodies could be combined, and the can cantus firmus 
became the basis of more complex compositions. In the next three centuries, the original melody was increasingly embellished by the harmony which clothes it and is built around it, offering the listener a melody visualised as being on top and having below a group of notes, a chord, that will please the ear. Michael Main, in his book, The Enduring Melody, writes, I believe that the creation is the endless sequence of variations on the unchanging theme of God's creative love. I believe that the give and take of love, which lies at the heart of our universe, because it lies at the heart of what we mean by the Trinity, is the ground base, or the cantus firmus, which we are invited to discover ourselves. The cantus firmus we are invited to discover in our lives is the eternal and everlasting creator, redeemer and sustainer. God, the incarnate and affirming God, the Christ-like God of the word made flesh. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his letters and papers from prison, God requires that we should love him eternally with our whole hearts, yet not so as to compromise or diminish our earthly affections, but as a kind of cantus firmus to which the other melodies of life provide the counterpoint. Where the ground base is firm and clear, there is nothing to stop the counterpoint from being developed to the utmost of its limits. Only a polyphony of this kind can give life a wholeness and assure us that nothing can go wrong so long as the cantus firmus is kept going. Put your faith in the cantus firmus. For Bonhoeffer facing execution, it is the wholehearted love of God which is to be the ground base, the firm ground of his life. Faith is not about assenting to the truth of theological formulae. It's about relationship with God. And like every relationship, it has to be worked at. And the experiences of a lifetime will modify, refine and deepen it. The kingdom itself lies at the heart of this ca cantus firmus, at the heart of the justice and love of God, at the heart of that unconditional love that we see in our gospel reading. And there are two gifts to us, corporate prayer and the Eucharist, given to us by Jesus himself to help us in that cantus firmus. They are the ground base that we need to come back to time and time again, and which at particular seasons such as Lent, we're invited to return to in a more focused way. Jesus firstly shows the disciples how to pray in the words of the Lord's Prayer, and then shows them how he wants to be remembered. In those two actions, he strips away all the peripheral notes of life and directs their, them, and by extension us, our attention to the ground base, to the things we are to build our life upon. And so tonight we come back to the ground base of our faith, to the cantus firmus, to prayer and to the breaking of bread.
And even though we cannot be together to share bread, we can eat anything in remembrance and thanksgiving of the love afforded to us and written in the dust of our souls. On the night before he died, Jesus shows the disciples in the shared meal the four actions of taking, giving thanks, breaking and blessing, which have been the four marks of his life. They are the cantus firmus for all who declare themselves to be followers of his and are prepared for their lives to be shaped in this same pattern. Later in this service, we come to remember that we are dust by marking ourselves with the cross. As Pauline said at the beginning, maybe you would like to get the stone with the ash cross marked on it that was delivered to you. Or perhaps you have another cross in your house. Or maybe you have ash from your palm cross last year to hand, or oil, or just with your fingers. Make the sign of the cross on your forehead at that time in our service. Because in so doing, we come to affirm in that action that God is our cantus firmus, and we are willing to recommit to live our lives as a pattern of self-giving, standing in the confidence of his grace. We commit to offer our lives back to God, to live thankfully, to break and share our lives in service of others, to call the justice and fast of God into the world through prayer, and especially the words of the Lord's Prayer. This is how we constantly touch base. This is how we are constantly able to stand in front of Jesus and hear and read the message he has for us. Will you come and follow me and share your life with me? Amen.